This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 7th of August 2021 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Today... I thought of my parents' unease with stripping off on a beach. Visits to the seaside when you were most likely going to end up dodging the rain. There's something about growing up in this kind of sun that gets into the soul. I was a little envious of those heat-touched Mallorquin nippers, of their easy confidence. Our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, takes it easy in Mallorca. Journalist and author Teres Diastany will be sitting in with me going through the papers and commenting on the news. And then... Back in the UK, we learned that a slice of cake is to go under the hammer. By which we mean being proffered for auction next week is a slice of icing off the wedding cake, well, one of the wedding cakes, dished up in honour of the 1981 betrothal of Prince Charles to the then Lady Diana Spencer. Andrew Muller reflects on the week and wedding cakes that were. That's all ahead on Monocle on Saturday on Monocle 24. Taliban insurgents captured an Afghan provincial capital and killed the government's senior media official in Kabul on Friday amid a deteriorating security situation as US and other foreign troops withdrew. A Taliban spokesperson said the insurgents had completely liberated Niroz province and have taken control of the governor's house, police headquarters and other official buildings. The man alleged to have wounded 10 people in a knife attack on a Tokyo commuter train late on Friday told police he became incensed when he saw women who looked happy and wanted to kill them. Violent crime is rare in Japan, but there have been a spate of knife attacks by assailants unknown to the victims. And wildfires in Greece raged into the night, burning more forests and homes in the northern outskirts of Athens and other parts of the country, and forcing more evacuations as international aid was on the way. In neighbouring Turkey, authorities are battling the country's worst ever wildfires. In Italy, hot winds fanned flames on the island of Sicily this week. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Well, now joining me for a look at today's papers is Terry Stiastany. Welcome, Terry. Good morning. Uh, now, just picking up on that last story about those fires in Greece and indeed across uh, the Mediterranean, obviously, as everybody has been pointing out, this is climate change. It's real. It's here now. Uh, and there are many, many articles in the press about this. Uh, Keir Starmer has been attacking Boris Johnson. That's the Labour opposition leader here in the UK, attacking the Prime Minister, saying he's missing in action ahead of a vital climate talks. That's ahead of COP26. Johnson himself has been talking about coal mines. Yes. Um, and this is uh, sort of an interesting example of the way that often kind of British political reporting gets sidetracked from the, the big difficult issues into let's have a row about, you know, something that someone said, in this case, um, Boris Johnson. Uh, he made, he was on a visit, he's been on a visit to Scotland this week, which has obviously been a big political issue ahead of uh, the Climate Change Summit, which is, of course, taking place in Glasgow. Uh, he's been, you know, having a sort of war of words with Nicola Sturgeon as, as to, you know, who should visit whom and, and whether they should whether they should have proper meetings ahead of this uh, ahead of this summit. Um, and uh, during the course of, of this visit, uh, 
Boris Johnson, uh, he went to uh, wind farms and so, and so on. And he made what I think was supposed to be a joke about um, Marg- the, the fact that Margaret Thatcher had closed coal mines in the 1980s meant that Britain was ahead of the game uh, in terms of closing down kind of polluting um, power sources. Where And of course, this you know, intentionally or otherwise, went down extremely badly with um, Keir Starmer and with others, particularly because of the effect that the closure of the mines had on on so many communities uh, kind of across the UK. Uh, So Keir Starmer's called on Boris Johnson, the Guardian says, to apologise for joking about Margaret Thatcher closing coal mines, describing the remarks as utterly shameful. Uh, And so this has caused outrage. And Starmer says, I stood by the miners under the Tories. I stand by their communities now. Uh, These communities contributed so much to the success of our country. Um, But I suppose one of the things that this shows is um, that people don't... You know, it's very difficult to get people to talk about these big issues. It often comes down to, you know, either sort of the history or, or, or the way that it's going to have an effect on, on people. I mean, Nicola Sturgeon here said, you know, Scotland had been utterly devastated by Thatcher's destruction of the coal industry, saying it had zero to do with any concern that she had for the planet. So, yeah, I think, you know, Boris Johnson would be... Sort of, I don't think, you know, Margaret Thatcher did not close the mines because she thought, well, this is a, an amazing way to get ahead of the game in terms of uh, environmental policy, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, absolutely not. I mean, this this is picked up everywhere, That the whole sort of climate thread uh, um, from the New York Times to, I mean, absolutely everywhere. There's a really good site actually called Carbon Brief, uh, which does a great roundup of all the climate stories. And I think it's just, uh, I mean, this is something we cannot afford to ignore. No, we can't. Um, but it, it is always difficult to get people to talk about, you know, when you're talking about something that at the moment seems a long way in the future. Obviously, we're seeing all the forest fires and floods and things like that, which are much more immediate. But when people are saying, what should we be doing in 2035? Or what should we be doing by 2030? In terms of, you know, our own personal behaviour, whether that's getting a different kind of car, whether that's, you know, doing something on an individual level. And I think one of the things that the British government is certainly struggling with at the moment is uh, trying to get that that balance between thinking long term but then talking about kind of very small individual decisions whether that's about your your household boiler or whether that's about your exchanging your car or you know whether people should be giving up meat so on one hand if you look at the the small individual actions it seems like people they're not asking people to do enough but on the other hand then if if you talk about big long term goals then it's quite hard to get people to engage with what it is that you you need to be doing and when you think when it seems that something's just on, on a global level you think well what can I do as an individual mm. well here in Britain the current obsession everywhere seems to be can and will people go on a summer holiday uh, and of course the rules with France have just changed uh, yes so France uh, was in a strange situation this kind of at what they called an amber plus situation where unlike if you're coming from amber countries in the British uh, traffic light system then uh, you would have you still have to quarantine on, on your return to the UK. They've now changed that. So as of, I think it is uh, Sunday morning, if you return from France to the UK, you don't have to quarantine anymore. Um, but looking uh, so looking in, looking in France, what's going on, it's interesting because one of the things that you do have to do if you get there uh, is, is to have a, a COVID pass to enter lots of uh, different venues. Um, they are 
spreading this out now, um, the French Constitutional Court has allowed this to to be used in everywhere from sort of museums to restaurants. So if you go to France or if you are in France, you will have to have to show that. Uh, and Macron is facing uh, quite a lot of um, demonstrations uh, against this. I mean, uh, the interesting the, the Le Monde says here. Uh, for the fourth weekend, uh, the oppo- uh, opponents, excuse me, opponents of this pass sanitaire that they call it are demonstrating across France um, and saying that, you know, this is a response to Macron's appeal to everybody to get vaccinated. But interestingly, um, although there's a relatively small number of, well, there's been quite a few demonstrations across France, but, you know, it see, Macron's decision to do this uh, actually seems to have worked. And saying that more than 44 million French people have been had at least one dose of vaccination. And although there are people protesting, saying, look, we don't want this, we don't, you know, this is uh, restricting our freedoms, uh, that actually a lot of people are saying, well, you know, look, if the choice is not being able to go on a long distance train or not being able to go to a cafe or restaurant, then I'm going to choose to get my vaccination. Interestingly enough, Macron chose to give part of this message on TikTok. Talk. Yes, I think you know he's really trying to uh, appeal to uh, the young people. He is trying. He's going on TikTok. He's going on social media. He's you know saying, look, you know, okay, France, we're France. We love freedom, but if your freedom to uh, you know go to a restaurant, you've got to balance that against the freedom of other people and the freedom of your your friends and relatives uh, not to get ill. So you need to think about what what the balance of that is. And it's quite interesting here because in uh, Le Monde, one of the protesters, a 42-year-old uh, protester who says they describe him as a gilet jaune, so somebody who's been protesting uh, against the government on a variety of issues for a while. And he says, well, even he says, I've, you've got the impression that uh, a lot of, a large part of the population have uh, have accepted uh, this situation. And, you know, this is one of the organisers of a demonstration. So even he is saying, well, OK, yeah, maybe uh, maybe many people are actually accepting the situation, even though he, he personally doesn't. Absolutely. Now, I know that you're actually planning to go to France on holiday. How difficult is it to organise? Uh, one of the main difficulties is that things keep cha- the rules keep changing. So you're constantly having to watch, you know, wh- uh, what are the French rules on letting people in? What are the rules on testing? Uh, what are the rules on... And even government seem completely unclear. So, you know, the French government was give- saying how introduced new changes. So, for instance, uh, fully vaccinated adults don't have to uh, have a test to travel into France, but children who haven't been vaccinated do have to have a test. You have to have that within 24 hours of travel. uh, And then you have to work out the testing system on the way back again. So you have to have a test before leaving France and a test after you get back to the UK. Uh, so, and you have to have a certificate from basically on your honour, sort of attestation saying that you promise that you have not come into contact with a COVID case and that you are not uh, yourself having any symptoms. So you have to upload all of this um, before you travel. And that's before you even try to, to bring a pet, which <laughs> used to be a relatively straightforward thing with the pet passport. There is now no longer a pet passport. You now have to get a very expensive set of uh, certificates from a vet, uh, allowing, in, which is sort of in multiple languages uh, saying that your animal is allowed to travel and that it's not being moved for commercial purposes. So, I mean, wow, you're really going to need to relax once you get there. <laughs> yeah, I've got all my papers in order, I hope. I hope. So, you know, once I get through. <laughs> well, look, Andrew uh, Andrew Tuck, our editor-in-chief, has also been on a trip. It sounds extremely successfully. Uh, let's hear what he has to say. When you ask people in Mallorca where they're going on holiday this summer, 
they will often name a destination that's little more than an hour's drive from their home. They're renting a house at the beach, spending a couple of weeks on their boat with the kids, even just staying put. They may even have a second home up in the cooler mountain air of, say, Val de Mossa, where they will retreat to. A few adventurous ones reveal that they're off to a neighbouring Balearic island for a change of scenery, but not that many. Indeed, when we've asked people for their views on other places to visit in the Balearics, they often beat a hasty conversational retreat, many claiming to have only ever ventured to the neighbouring isles a handful of times. If they go anywhere, it's more likely to be Madrid or London. But not now, not in the peak of summer. In short, they simply recognise that they live in a pretty good place. And as one person said to us, what's also brilliant is if we forget anything, we can just go home and get it. Perhaps that's part of Mallorca's success. It's physically small and somehow in its heart and ambition, quite big too. There are about 1.2 million inhabitants, some 400,000 of whom live in the capital, Parma. And that's enough to support good cultural institutions and lots of industries that have nothing to do with tourism. It feels like its own self-contained nation. We were back there last week and on Saturday, we drove east across the island, out past red-soiled fields as redolent of Africa as Europe, past farms with their old-school wind turbines, through towns that become dozy at weekends, the shutters on shops all down like sleepy eyelids, and onto the dust-swirled lanes, and then finally to a spot not far from the beach. My dithering meant that it was already mid-afternoon by the time shoes were slipped off and sand felt underfoot. But judging by the other people who were also snaking down to the beach through the breeze-shimmered pines, this was a good time to arrive when the sun's heat had abated just a little. From a position under our umbrella, I found myself surveying the other beachgoers. There were lots of extended Spanish families with elaborate shading setups under which beers were being drunk, ham on sandwiches being constructed. Their kids darted to the water with snorkels, jumped on laughing mums, enticed dad to play chase. Happy summer moments being etched into minds, moments that would shape these children forever. At the water's edge, young men were playing beach ball, yet somehow never whacking anyone in the face. It seemed a pursuit more collaborative than competitive. There was some canoodling, not me, I hasten to add, bookworms sitting in their low-slung beach chairs. I thought of my parents' unease with stripping off on a beach, visits to the seaside when you were most likely going to end up dodging the rain. There's something about growing up in this kind of sun that gets into the soul. I was a little envious of those heat-touched Mallorquin nippers, of their easy confidence. As outsiders, you have to recognise that while a language can be learned, customs, yes, understood, you will never be at home here like this. You have to have been shaped by the place. But who cares? Even observer status is quite magical. We lingered on the beach until almost 7pm, and while many people had already left by then, some stragglers were still arriving. I'd felt a bit sluggish in recent days, but as we retraced our steps through the trees, I felt the healing benefits of a Spanish beach. So the next day, we came back to the very same spot to take the waters again, already allowing our world here to contract and find routine. 
not feeling a need to venture to new places. Who knows, perhaps we might just fit in after all. Many thanks there to Andrew Tucker, Editor-in-Chief, and you'll be relieved to know that although he could fit in there, he has in fact come back to London and we haven't lost him yet to Spain. This is Monocle on Saturday on Monocle 24 and joining me in the studio is Terry Stiastini, who is a journalist and an author, uh, and we've been looking through the front pages. Now, we were talking about climate change, Terry, and I think there's one more really important story that we need to cover uh, with regard to that before we move on, and that's floods in Germany. Yes, I mean, we were talking about, you know, the examples and the sort of the practical impact of climate change and how that might affect people. There's a really interesting story here in the Financial Times looking at uh, not only the sort of the business cost, I suppose, but the human cost as well of, you know, the devastating floods that there were in Germany. And this is from the, the R Valley, it's saying German wine region counts the cost of floods. Um, and it's just the the scale of the devastation of course you know this it, these are people who are expecting the wine harvest in a few weeks and on the 14th of July uh, vineyards businesses um, were damaged obviously homes and you know people's life many lives were lost uh, and it's just the scale of this so the FT has uh, interviewed somebody in uh, Marienthal Peter Kriechel a uh, uh, a winemaker and it says some 50 million euros worth of wine was lost but there's also all the machines filters and presses he says that 15 hectares of vines uh, were destroyed and you know the people are saying the scale of the damage here uh, vintage wines and cellars buried in a deluge of mud uh, and the estate have been left with nothing they've lost everything that you know the wine barrels and these are families that have been making wine in this area uh, for generations but actually they're finding that one of the I suppose, you know, the good thing is they're saying it's almost like a war, you know, the devastation here. Um, but silver lining is that other wine growing areas have helped out. Volunteers have poured in from the Mosul valleys with offers to help with the vines and to bring equipment and a huge amount of solidarity. And people are actually, they've come up with a scheme to sell flood wine, to sell these mud covered ancient bottles from the cellars uh, and give the proceeds to the flood victims. So, you know, there's some reassuring, you know, help going on here. But, um, you know, this is just a huge uh, sort of huge impact um, and then one of the slightly I suppose reassuring note at the end of this story uh, the winemaker Mr Crucial says that despite his losses a quarter of his bottled wine has gone as well as some 40,000 litres in barrels Crucial says my family's been making wine here for nearly 500 years there's no way we'll stop now Wow uh, Just a, a note for wine lovers actually we have our uh, quality of life conference coming up uh, in Athens from the 23rd to the 25th of September and one of the speakers there is uh, Chandra Kurtz now she is a Swiss winemaker uh, and she's, she's written extensively on, on wine uh, and uh, I think tw more than 20 books on wine uh, and so what she'll be doing at, at this conference in Athens uh, is, is having a she'll be talking to us about wine of course but but also having tastings so uh, people that uh, have not yet discovered Swiss wine which I have to tell you is extremely good um, will will have an opportunity to, to do so. Well I think even people, people in Athens particularly with all the fires going on and there's been some really dramatic images over the last few days of fires you know 
right around the edge of Athens, and you know people there are seeing the impacts of this. But you know, I suppose also you know, and wine will have to change because the kinds of grapes you can grow, that whether the temperatures are too high, or you know, places where you couldn't grow wine before, like in uh, in the Cotswolds in England, you're suddenly now able to plant vineyards in Kent. So you know, all of these things people are having to take into account all of the time. Yeah, fire of a different sort now when we turn our gaze to the literary world and a piece in the Financial Times today. The headline is From Hay to Haywire and it's talking about the Hay Festival. Uh, This was uh, set up by Peter Florence and his parents uh, back in 1988 and for years it ran like a family project. Uh, In July he said uh, that uh, he was talking about the extraordinary risk at the heart of every literary gathering. Peter Florence said it takes a shared passion for something that's profoundly private and personal, the act of reading and makes it very public. Well, unfortunately, what's also happened is that Hayes' dirty linen is very much out in public now. Uh, Florence was suspended uh, and uh, now uh, has has actually resigned. And I think what what that throws up is is talking about areas and uh, of um, how institutions uh, can be completely steered by one person and how those institutions, whether it's hay or anything else, uh, can continue once that key person has gone. Yes, I think that is a really interesting um, issue. Obviously, you know, Hay and White has grown from something tiny into just such a, a huge uh, festival. It's got all sorts of international uh, offshoots. It has, you know, huge audiences in, in normal times. And of course, you know, every festival or whatever has had difficulty in the last couple of years because they've had to cancel events or, or go online. But as you say, I think whether it is... Um, a sports team, you see that when you get a, a coach or a trainer. We've seen that in the Olympics. Some sports have had a, a hugely charismatic figure that everybody has uh, looked up to. And once they're gone, it's quite hard to keep uh, the team or the organisation uh, going in in the same way. And I think it's always, you know, whether it's also a business as well, a startup business often is founded by a sort of charismatic, dynamic founder. And one of the challenges is to turn it into an institution that doesn't rely on one person and one person saying, well, this is the way we do things here and trying to keep, you know, the brand going and to keep the uh, the enthusiasm, which there certainly is for something for something like, hey, it's become, you know, sort of real place that people want to go, you know, authors want to go there, audiences want to go there. And I suppose the question is, you know, yeah, how, how do you do that? And how do you, find, it's always hard for the, the successor who comes in uh, to, to keep that um, while changing things that need to be changed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, every organisation needs to reinvent itself constantly, doesn't it? You can't run something for over 30 years and expect it to remain exactly the same. But I'm quite sure, I mean, Hay has a very, very strong team and that will continue. And I'm also sure that because Peter Florence is such a visionary and really put together this extraordinary event that he'll be much in demand across the literary world too. Um, It is the season of literary festivals which means that I am up to my eyes in books. I literally cannot look up from a page for more than a second without feeling guilty right now. The other thing it's the season for is weddings, of course. In the summer, the British go mad for their weddings and for the last 19 months, they haven't been able to do so. And so all of a sudden, all of these sort of lovely little country weddings and various things are are popping up all over the place. Uh, How did you get married? Uh, we had a, a very small wedding because I was having had sort of years of going to friends' weddings, you know, which are you know obviously all lovely for the people involved, but sometimes you get absolutely <laughs> tired of tired of weddings and sort of the routine and having to you know travel variously and and the outfits and and all of the 
paraphernalia. So we got married in in a very 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 nice restaurant, a Michelin starred restaurant with just uh, basically just close family there. Um, and essentially, it was largely about the food. So we, nice. we had small nice. fa- few family and an extremely extremely nice meal. And you're still married to We're the same married. person. Yes. So, so, <laughs> <laughs> so in that way, it was it was a success. But we did get married after being together for for a long time and decided we just wanted yeah the good meal. And yeah. <laughs> a little bit of company. Well, my, my marriage was in Zimbabwe under a waterfall called Bridal Veil Falls and we had a string quartet and it was all very beautiful except that we, when we did the recce um, the, the the rains hadn't happened yet when we went back for the actual wedding the river was in full flood you couldn't hear the string quartet at all and it, actually it was all quite funny and you can read about it my brother wrote a book and my wedding and photographs of my wedding in fact are in When a Crocodile Eats the Sun um, so it's, uh, it, it's quite funny that that should be there and the reason I mention weddings is that Andrew Muller seems to be a little bit obsessed with them, particularly the wedding of Princess Diana and Prince Charles. Let's hear what Andrew reflects was important this week. We're all going on a summer holiday. We learned this week of a potential heartening omen of a return to something like normal pre-pandemic life. Here in the UK, August is known in media circles as the silly season, with Parliament in recess and everyone important on holiday and sensible news therefore in short supply, tabloid newspapers in particular have traditionally filled their pages during these hot summer weeks by latching onto stories which, while perhaps not of earth-shattering importance in and of themselves, can be willfully flammed up into sentimental heartstring twangers and or moral panics. For some reason, these often involve competitive donkey rescuing. Yes, well done. Anyway, this week we have learned from Fleet Street's finest of the plight of Geronimo, a Gloucestershire-based alpaca. Is, Is that what an alpaca sounds like? I'll be damned. This is, we should make clear, a genuinely sad story. Geronimo tested positive for bovine tuberculosis some years ago, since when he has been the subject of a legal battle to avert his enforced demise. That struggle has reached a climax amid a chorus of pleas from damp-eyed celebrities, incalculable social media anguish and petitions to the Prime Minister. From which we have learned, and it's almost reassuring, perhaps Geronimo's parting gift to his nation, that even Britain's most serious mastheads remain cheerfully willing to pile in, come August, on such a yarn. The Telegraph. The alpaca that broke a nation's heart. The Times. Geronimo. The death row alpaca. We have not learned, because we simply cannot bring ourselves to look, whether a subsidiary hue and cry is underway regarding the appalling insensitivity of naming Geronimo after the great Apache chief, but it would come as a considerable surprise if there wasn't. Anyway. On the Atlantic's other shore, we learned of a hearteningly brisk assertion of sanity in the face of the demented fantasy nurtured in certain seething quarters. And then they have cans of soup. Soup. 
that the 2020 US presidential election was stolen, rigged, fraudulent, whatever. A focus of this nonsense has been Maricopa County in Arizona, where Republican state senators have been undertaking what they claim is an audit of the votes, but which does look rather more like a total waste of everyone's time. And we learned this week that the chairman of Maricopa County's Board of Supervisors, Jack Sellers, himself a Republican, is entirely over it. We learned that he'd sent the GOP senators a letter, key excerpts of which will now be intoned by Monocle's electoral chicanery desk chief, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Dear senators, the board has real work to do and little time to entertain this adventure in Never Never Land. There was no fraud, there wasn't an injection of ballots from Asia, nor was there a satellite that beamed votes into our election equipment. Let's hear it for Chairman Sellers. Back in the UK, we learned that a slice of cake is to go under the hammer. Another occasion risen to magnificently by the sound effects department. By which we mean, obviously, that we learned that being proffered for auction next week is a slice of icing off the wedding cake, well, one of the wedding cakes, dished up in honour of the 1981 betrothal of Prince Charles to the then Lady Diana Spencer. We learned from the entrancingly detailed auction house notes that the slab of confectionery in question is adorned with the royal coat of arms, was originally presented to an employee of the Queen Mother, and has been lovingly, if inexplicably, preserved down the decades in plastic wrap in a cake tin. We learned further that it is expected that some dingbat will pay between three and five hundred quid for this elderly marzipan, though the auctioneers solemnly advise against eating it. And we learned of one of the arguably less tragic casualties of the COVID-19 pandemic, i.e. mildly amusing pretty fly for a white guy hitmakers, The Offspring, who have parted ways with their drummer over his refusal to take a COVID-19 vaccine. We were going to do this whole thing about this, but we learned when we looked into it, conscientious as ever, that everybody had already made the why don't you get a jab joke, so we're not. The wry sidelong look at the news racket. It's the quick and the dead. It really is. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Many thanks there to Andrew Muller. And uh, that's just about it from us, although we do have some breaking holiday news. Breaking holiday news. Well, as Andrew was saying there, this is a fairly typical August silly season story here, but this comes from the political editor of The Times on Twitter. Um, hasn't yet made it into the sort of the online paper yet. Exclusive. Boris Johnson nearly swept out to sea, I assume it doesn't say, during his last holiday in Scotland. He went paddleboarding or canoeing and got into trouble. His protection officers had to swim out and drag him back to safety. He's not returning to Scotland for his holiday this year. Boris Johnson is said to be desperate to go abroad for holiday, but he's been warned it would be a PR disaster. He won't go back to Scotland. One source said he told friends, over my dead 
dead body. Uh, but the, and the source, uh, Boris Johnson, is apparently expected to staycation in the in the southwest of England. Um, and the source tells uh, a reporter from the Times, it would not be a good look for the prime minister if he was abroad while thousands were stuck in hotel quarantine after we put Mexico on the red list. Uh, so yeah, everybody, even the person who is supposed to be making these decisions, is uh, affected by where he can go and worrying about what is a good look for our holiday and not being swept out to sea. Absolutely. Terry, thank you very much indeed. And you have a wonderful holiday in France. Thanks. Uh, that's all for this edition of Monocle on Saturday. Thanks to our studio engineer, Nora Hull. I'm Georgina Godwin and Monocle on Saturday will return at the same time next week. Thank you for listening. Thank you.